It feels like every day we're hearing from a drug company on new studies about vaccines. Today, Johnson & Johnson announced that a second J&J dose can boost protection against severe COVID-19. Yesterday, it was a big announcement from Pfizer. The company says its vaccine is safe and effective for kids from ages 5 to 11. What was your first reaction when you saw that? Well, obviously, excitement and joy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because the, you know, I will say this till I'm blue in the face, the only path out of the pandemic is if we all get the shot. Dr. Anita Patel has been treating kids with severe COVID cases. So I was super, super, super excited. But I will tell you my second uh, reaction was show me the data. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Emma Chalkoff. It's Tuesday, September 21st. Today, we're talking all about vaccines. While we're waiting to hear from federal agencies about booster shots, which could come any day this week, we're going to dig into what to expect. And we're going to hear more about where things stand for children. We're going to start there. A second ago, you heard Dr. Anita Patel. She's a critical care pediatrician at Children's National Hospital here in D.C. I would say that my my mental ability to handle sort of this certain new surge of COVID is very different from the beginning um, because now I see every case of COVID in kids as preventable because almost always the kids that we're seeing with COVID are in families that are unvaccinated. And that's what is mentally difficult to handle is that this could have been prevented. We didn't need to get here. I talked to Dr. Patel about the vaccine timeline for kids, what we know and don't know so far, and what it's been like caring for children since the start of the pandemic. Let's remember the great news is that most kids are surviving, you know? The mortality rate in kids has not changed. It's It's been between 0 and 0.3% this whole pandemic. Yes, we are seeing a surge of pediatric cases. You know, they're representing 29% of all new cases. I mean, these are stats that anyone can read on the news. But I I do want to impress upon people that, you know, we don't believe that this Delta variant is specifically attacking children. It's that the children are not vaccinated. Can you tell me a little bit more about like what that looks like on the ground? It sounds like you are seeing a lot more patients than normal. Just tell me a little bit about what that's like and what it feels like for you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's important to remember that, yes, we are absolutely seeing COVID patients. And just like the rest of the country, our COVID patients have varying degrees of um, illness. So some of them we can support with those non-invasive measures. And unfortunately, we also have kids that are are very sick and um, need to have a breathing tube and be put on a ventilator. So, you know, we really have seen the gamut of COVID patients, some of them who are lucky enough to avoid a breathing tube and some which are not. So when can we expect kids ages 5 to 11 to be vaccinated? 
we can expect kids to get the shot as early as Halloween. And I'm extrapolating that figure from the Pfizer press release. So, and I actually think it it can happen. So what's going to need to happen in order to achieve that? Because I know everyone wants to know sort of mileposts to know that we're we're on the right track. Uh, So what we're looking for is Pfizer to submit the data as I always say, show me the data, Um, submit the data to uh, the FDA within the next week. If Pfizer can meet that first milepost, then the FDA is going to work on overtime to very comprehensively review the data. And I do think that we can get that shot in our kids' arms as early as Halloween. Obviously, as a parent of a young child, I'm I'm eagerly anticipating the shot for my child. And, you know, I do think given these results in this uh, lower 10 microgram dose in the 5 to 11 kids, I think it's very promising that we could see similar results in children six months to five years um, by the end of the year or early next year. And then the other thing I wanted to ask, could you just give kind of a a summary, an explanation of the briefing and how they did the lower dose? Can you just like give me sort of a quick summary of like what they did and, and what it said? Absolutely. So they enrolled over 2,000 pediatric patients aged 5 to 11. They powered the study for safety, meaning making sure there's no serious side effects. They powered it for tolerability, which means making sure that the non-serious side effect profile is also tolerable because it has to be in order for people to actually get it. And then they also wanted to evaluate the neutralizing antibody response because, again, that does translate in our populations that have been vaccinated to protection against um, serious infection from you know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. So it was powered for all three of those. And I think the most exciting part is that in our children 12 and up, they received this, the standard 30 microgram dose. And they, Pfizer, and really wanted to make sure that we achieved the minimum, but effective dose for younger children. And that's why they tested this 10 microgram dose, which is obviously one third the dose that everyone else got. And even with that smaller dose, um, they achieved all the targets that I mentioned. It was safe, it was tolerable, and it produced an excellent neutralizing antibody response, which is all very promising. And I think it's important to know that in our younger kids, um, age six months to five years, they're testing an even smaller dose. It's three micrograms. So they are really making sure that they are giving our kids the smallest but most effective dose to sort of maximize all three of those prongs that I mentioned. I I am very careful not to say that we have proven that this shot is efficacious because I haven't seen the data. None of us have seen the data. And also important to remember that the study was not powered, meaning they did not have a sample size that was created to establish efficacy. So though the study is going to keep going and we will get there. They are seeing that our cases are in children are going up by 240% since July, 240%. I just think health messaging around what this means is, is, is incredibly important. You mentioned 
earlier about the hospital being kind of overwhelmed. And I understand that Children's National was recently at capacity. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like and what it felt like to see that? Like as you're kind of walking around, what did it look like? You know, when we're at capacity, that can mean different things at different hospitals. And, you know, despite being at quote unquote capacity, we do not close our doors. And that's the truth. But what that does mean, and I think it's important, particularly for local people to know, is that that does translate into longer wait times in the ER because there are more patients presenting. And, you know, from a practical perspective, uh, as I said, we never close our doors. So we make sure that if we do not have sufficient bed spaces in our ICU, that we um, make beds and staff it with, you know, very qualified ICU nurses and ICU attendings at a location that's not in our, in our ICU. So we, that's what it looks like. Yeah. I, I'm thinking you must just be exhausted. Like we had sort of, you know, a first wave of learning how to deal with this disease. And for a while, it kind of seems like things were getting better. But I mean, what has it been like during this phase and seeing kids come in sick just, you know, as there was starting to be a little bit of hope, but now we have Delta and now we have so many unvaccinated people. Can you just talk to me about what you've been feeling? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. It has been mostly anger. And, you know, I know we're talking about the vaccine because that is absolutely the most important measure we have to stop this pandemic and prevent the spread of the coronavirus. But, you know, we always talk about layered protection, right? And that layered protection includes the vaccine, but it also includes masks, distancing, and improve ventilation in schools. And I think that anger is coming from, you know, states that are actively working to not implement these life-saving measures. If they could have implemented that layered protection, even our unvaccinated children, those children who have not been eligible yet, could have been largely protected. And that's what makes me mad, you know. And I will tell you, I was on service a few weeks ago, and it was mentally one of the most difficult weeks of being an attending in the ICU that I have ever had because treating preventable illnesses is honestly devastating. And what does it mean to you for just like the spread of the coronavirus to hear that there has been a robust response in kids in this age group, five to 11 years old, to the vaccine? I mean, this is our path out of the pandemic. It, it truly is. And I, I know that people say, oh, but you can get breakthrough infections. Look, if you get a breakthrough infection that looks like the common cold or a breakthrough infection that's asymptomatic, that is an example of the vaccine doing its job. We're not up in arms when kids get rhinovirus and stay at home. And yeah, they're sick and it's very awful for the parents. I can speak as a parent. It really is awful. Um, but there are dramatic public health measures like face masks to prevent that, right? We don't do that to prevent the common cold. So if everyone is vaccinated and we continue to make sure that their immune response is, is good, and I mean, I'm talking about the boosters, then that's our path out of the pandemic. 
That's Dr. Anita Patel. She's a critical care pediatrician at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. After the break, what we know about booster shots and when you might be able to get one. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This week was supposed to be the week that booster shots were made widely available for adults. Here's reporter Lena Sun. So in mid-August, the Biden administration and health officials made a very big announcement. Pending approval from the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC's Committee of Outside Experts will be ready to start this booster program during the week of September 20, in which time anyone vaccinated on or before January 20 will be eligible to get a booster shot. People who were eight months past their second shot would be eligible to get a booster shot the week of September 20th. And in the view of many experts and in the view of many state health officials, including that specific date, raised the expectation in the mind of the general public of, okay, come Monday, September 20th, I should be able to get my booster. And that's not really the case because first the FDA and the CDC have to make a decision. This week, the FDA and CDC will discuss the next steps for boosters. The FDA's advisory committee already recommended third Pfizer shots for people who are 65 and older or at high risk. But that's still leaving a lot of people with questions. Moderna and Johnson & Johnson boosters are also in the works, but they've not yet started on the FDA approval process. I think part of the confusion is in the science world, there's a difference between what is a booster and what is a third shot for people who are immunocompromised. Several weeks ago, the federal government already said it was okay for people who have weak immune systems, you know, that those folks were allowed to get a third shot. That is not a boost. That third shot is supposed to bring their immune systems up to like a normal immune response. That's already been approved for people who are immunocompromised and they can get either a Pfizer or Moderna shot. What they're talking about here is a booster for folks who had a good response, but because they got their vaccinations six months ago, eight months ago, there has been a general waning in the protection of folks over time. And the idea of this is to boost that protection. So, Lena, what's the latest science on boosters? Like, is everyone recommended to get a booster or is it going to be triage to certain parts of the population? I think there's general agreement that for the older people, there's some evidence that the vaccines are not protecting as well against infection. But there's still 
robust in protecting against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. The Biden administration had wanted a booster for basically everybody who was eligible. And on Friday, the FDA's advisory panel said, uh-uh, we're going to keep this more narrow. And they said that was because there's not enough evidence of the need or benefit for lots of people, a broad population, to get a booster shot. I think what you will see in the coming weeks is applications from Moderna also for a booster. And I think the confusion has been these things are coming out not together, but one after another. So each time the company makes an application to the FDA for a booster shot, the FDA has to act on that. They can't say, okay, we're just going to weigh in on all boosters across the board. And I think that has led to some confusion. So what is the plan for booster rollouts at this point, especially for frontline workers? Well, so far, no boosters have been rolled out because they haven't been approved yet. But on the ground, what you have happening is we're in a fourth wave of infections. Hospitals are overwhelmed. They cannot afford to have their staff be sick for whatever reason. And healthcare workers were among the first groups that got vaccinated. So they are six months, eight months after their second shot. And health systems and hospitals are having to decide, well, do we wait to give frontline workers a booster or do we just go ahead? And my sense from talking to folks is that in many places, they're just going to go ahead and boost their staff because they just, they can't afford for them to be out sick because they won't be able to take care of patients. In some nursing homes, residents were vaccinated with Pfizer, but others were vaccinated with Moderna. So that leaves you with a very real world challenge. In a nursing home, let's say half the folks got Moderna and the other half got Pfizer. You're not going to go in and just boost the people who got Pfizer, right? The other nursing home residents are just as vulnerable and will be in need of a boost because that population is among the most at risk. Folks are having to deal with those challenges on the ground in real time. So do we know if it's potentially safe for people to mix and match? If they got, you know, two Moderna shots eight months ago, could they now potentially get a Pfizer booster or does it have to match the original shots that they got? So the CDC has told folks that it is best not to mix and match because right now there are clinical trials going on to try to answer that exact question. What happens if you go Moderna, Moderna, Pfizer, or Pfizer, Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J, Pfizer? And we're expecting to see that data from the NIH in a couple of weeks. But for now, the CDC has recommended that you do not mix. But The reason why it's a little bit confusing is that the CDC and the FDA, when they said it was okay to give an immunocompromised person a third shot, right, either Pfizer or Moderna, they said, well, it's preferable in those cases to stay with the vaccine you started with. But if you can't find any or there's none available, it's okay to get the other one. That's under the current CDC guidelines for people who are immunocompromised. Dr. Fauci was asked this question over the weekend, and he said he thought it was unlikely that there would be sort of big problems with mixing and matching. But obviously, you don't want to base vaccine policy on 
a hunch or what they think might happen, they're waiting for the data. And that is why the current federal recommendation is not to mix and match. I think a lot of this kind of gives me a feeling of deja vu back to when the vaccine was rolling out and there was all this confusion about when we could get it and what that would look like and how to get it and where to get it. Why is that happening again with the boosters, given that we just kind of went through that whole process for the first time? That's a good question, but it's also because science is messy and science is not black and white. And you had the administration sort of setting those expectations for the week of September 20th. If they hadn't said that specific date and they just said the fall, then I think there wouldn't be such dissonance. And the other thing is, I think at the time they made that announcement, they were under the impression that Moderna and Pfizer would be presenting their data to the FDA at the same time for boosters and that they would be able to act on them at the same time. But guess what? Moderna didn't get its data to the FDA. Only Pfizer did. And so they made a decision that, you know, they weren't going to wait, right? They were going to move with the data that they had. And I think that's something that people just generally don't understand. Folks think, why can't they just speed up the vaccines for kids? Or why can't parents just decide, well, I'm going to give my kids the pediatric vaccine? There is a process put in place to make sure that vaccines that are rolled out to Americans are safe and effective and they are tested. They got to make sure that, you know, if you give this dose, there's not going to be bad side effects. And if there are bad side effects, like who is at risk, are the risks outweighed by the benefits of getting the vaccine? That was Lena Sun. She covers health and science for The Post. There have now been more than 675,000 COVID-related deaths reported in the U.S. That's according to data tracked by The Post. Which means more Americans have now died from COVID than during the 1918 and 1919 flu pandemic. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Stranofsky and produced by Ariel Plotnick, Jordan Marie Smith, and Alexis Diao. I'm Emma Talkoff. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.